Welcome to Monmouth Community Christian Church. It's such a joy to join with you today as we worship our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm just logging into my computer. As a church, we're in a season in which God is teaching us more about the biblical value of authenticity. We began the year learning that the Pharisee in Jesus' parable in Luke 18 models the sin of hypocrisy, which is the opposite of the biblical value of authenticity because he thinks that God is pleased with him because of all his external acts of righteousness that he does. And I'm having trouble with my clicker. Because he has done so many good things, because he served God in so many ways, he thinks that he's successfully climbing up this ladder of good works all the way to God. The problem, though, is that his heart is unchanged. The tax collector, though, clearly sees his sin. He knows that there's no way he can climb up on a ladder all the way to God. And so he honestly and authentically admits his need for God, his need for God's mercy and God's grace. And he, he says his prayer before God as he beats his chest and as he bows his head is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus holds up this tax collector as the one in this parable with whom God is pleased. The tax collector is the model that Jesus gives us for what it means to live out this biblical value of authenticity. We're now working through the logic of authenticity. And what we're doing is a lot like learning how to solve a complicated math problem. In school, I mentioned last time, if someone cheats in math by looking up the answers to a certain type of math problem, then they, they know what the answer is, but they don't learn how to work through the steps to solve the problem themselves. And so the day when the test comes, the exam is handed to them, they don't know how to work through it themselves. Even though they knew all the right answers before that moment, they knew all the right math conclusions. They don't know how to work through it and, and use it and apply that knowledge to the test. In a similar way, we can hear all the right theological conclusions. We can know the Bible answers. We, we, we can know what we, we should think and say, but when a real test in life comes, we may not know how to work step by step through biblical truth in order to see the reasons for the right answers, the right conclusions. In other words, we may not truly understand how to apply God's truth to our lives, to our specific situations. And so we're working step by step through the logic of authenticity set out in Romans chapter 8 so we can more deeply understand how to live into this authenticity that Jesus is calling us to experience. The last time I spoke, we looked at the very first verse of this chapter, and my clicker died. Um, the first verse will be up in just a moment. 
Uh, there it is. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We saw that Jesus sets us free from all condemnation by being a sin offering in our place. By doing so, Jesus is the fulfillment foreshadowed by the two goats mentioned in Leviticus chapter 16 who were offered on the Day of Atonement. Like the first goat, Jesus dies in our place the death that we deserve because of our sin. In this way, Jesus is our substitute who takes upon himself the punishment for our sin so that we may be spared. Then like the second goat in Leviticus 16, the scapegoat, Jesus removes our sin from us. He takes that sin upon himself. He, he carries it away and he gives us his righteousness. So because of this substitution, Jesus dies in our place. And then because of this exchange, Jesus gives us his righteousness and he takes our sin. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Today we turn our attention to the way that the lifting of condemnation from us through the death of Jesus Christ as a sin offering in our place not only opens up the door for us to enter a relationship with God, it also transforms how we live. Before chapter 8 in Romans, Paul had spent a significant amount of time illustrating in detail the way the law alone fails to enable us to enter a relationship with God. The law fails to transform how we live. The law here refers to the law of Moses, which sets out all the rules that someone would need to follow in order to live according to God's righteousness. Now think back to that false path we looked at it several weeks ago, that spiritual shortcut that we discussed, which is actually a dead end. That false path was a mistake. We begin by grace. We receive God's forgiveness, but then we see this shortcut, and that shortcut is to turn off and say, okay, now that I know Jesus, I'm now going to try to earn God's favor. I'm going to try to climb up that ladder of good works as a Christian to to." Earn God's blessing through what I do for him. This false path is a mistake because it's an attempt to climb up to God. It's an attempt to earn the right to enter a relationship with God on the basis of our accomplishments, on the basis of our own goodness. And the law is is a description of what it will look like to cr climb up this ladder all the way to God through good work after good work after good work. The only problem, though, is that none of us is capable of doing this, of climbing up to God through good works because of our sinful flesh. Our sinful flesh. On our own, we cannot achieve God's righteousness 
on our own. And Paul gives a very vivid description of someone who's trying to climb up to God through his own righteousness, through his own good works, but who's prevented from doing so because of his sinful flesh. He's talking about himself because he spent most of his life trying to do this. Here's his biography. His autobiography, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Do you hear the struggle? Do you hear the frustration? This is Paul's life before he knew Jesus. Apart from Jesus Christ, taking our sin upon himself, under God's judgment, dying in our place, the death our sin deserves, and then exchanging our sin for his righteousness, there's no way for us to satisfy or fulfill the righteousness of God. There is no way it's impossible. Therefore, there's no way for us to climb up to God on a ladder of good works. Because as Paul tells us, and as is underlined at the bottom of the screen, sin lives in us. Sin our sinful flesh. We each have a sinful flesh within us that opposes God's will, that lives in opposition to God. And the way that the sinful flesh has gotten such a deep hold on us is because each of us have turned our back on God and when we've turned our back on God, we opened the gateways of our life to the power of sin. We invited the power of sin into our lives. And it infects us, it corrupts us, it destroys us. In Romans 7, when Paul speaks of wanting to do good, wanting to fulfill God's law, but being unable to do so because of a sinful flesh, a picture emerges of the law as this external pressure outside of ourselves trying to press us into living in a way that pleases God. The problem, though, is that the law does not change our heart does not transform who we are at the heart level. And any parent or youth worker knows we, we can't force the next generation to be or do what we want just by external pressure. They must choose it from the inside. And the law is like this external pressure. It's heavy, it, it's weighty, it crushes, but it doesn't transform. And in this horrible predicament, Paul describes himself by saying this, underlined at the top of the screen, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. This is what it feels like 
to be under the condemnation of the law. This hopeless situation in Romans chapter 7 makes Paul's opening words in Romans 8 ring out with fresh promise and hope and life. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Last time, we saw how Jesus accomplishes this. Today, we turn to the fundamental change that occurs when we experience this. Remember that in Romans 7, the main problem that Paul was struggling with was how he lived, how he acted. His sinful flesh prevented him from living in a way that pleases God. Now, though, there's a fundamental change in how he lives. We see this right away in Romans 8. And so, the he there is Jesus. And so, by being the sin offering, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to to the Spirit. Here's the miracle of what Jesus has done. He not only fully meets the requirement of the law in us so that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but then he also enables us to live according to the Spirit, not according to our sinful flesh. In other words, the incredible miracle by which Jesus lifts all condemnation from us, it's not only a spiritual reality. It's also a reality that transforms how we live on a daily basis. In my next two or three sermons, we're going to trace this logic of authenticity through this process in order to understand better how Jesus enables us to live in healed and transformed relationships. The first step, Paul says, is to take note of the direction of our minds. Take note of the direction of our minds. Each of us, whether we know it or not, have our minds turned in a specific direction. There are things we think about. There are worries that we carry. There are goals that we continually weigh. There are hopes that fill our daydreams. The reason Paul says that we must take note of the direction of our minds, the things that our minds continually think about, is because the direction of our minds reveals the direction of our lives. The direction of our minds reveals the direction of our lives. Our lives, how we live, what we do, will follow the direction of our minds. Paul says it this way. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. 
The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. I used to ride a motorcycle regularly, and I, at one time in my life, I've owned two different Harley Davidsons. And I've told you before that one lesson I've learned about how to steer a motorcycle through a, a tight turn is, is that you must turn your attention and focus your eyes on where you want the motorcycle to travel. This is so weird. It's okay if you don't believe me, but it is true. Try it on a bicycle if, if you haven't done it. If you focus your attention on the path where you want your motorcycle to travel, then as you lean into a turn, the machine will follow your eyes. It's true. I, I tested this recently. Bonnie and I uh, ride our bicycles sometimes, and there's this point where there's this paved path where we often make a U-turn. And when I'm not paying attention, when I'm thinking about something else, and I try to make that tight U-turn, I often don't make it. I often end up turning too widely and my bike goes off the path into the grass. But every single time that I focus on the path I want my bicycle to travel, I turn my eyes, I focus my attention on that path. Every single time I make this tight turn in the path, I have room to spare. Your bicycle, your motorcycle will follow where you turn your attention. This is what Paul is saying. How we live, what we do will follow the direction of our minds. And Paul tells us something more. We can see the direction our lives are heading by paying attention to what we're thinking about, by noting the direction of our minds. Again, he says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Paul's asking, what's your mind focused on? In what direction is your mind pointed if your mind is set on what the sinful flesh desires, then this means you're living according to the flesh. And the danger of living according to the sinful flesh is that this leads towards spiritual death. Paul says in the underlined part, the mind governed by the flesh is death. Not only that, but the mind that's set on what the sinful flesh desires exists in open rebellion against God. Paul writes that next underlined part, that this mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. This morning, what's your mind set on? Where is your attention directed? If your mind is governed by the flesh, then this direction of your mind is revealing the direction of your life, and the destination may not be what you want. Later in this chapter, Paul will say this even more bluntly. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
He's describing spiritual death here, separation from God. But if we direct our attention to the things of God and we allow God by his Holy Spirit to lead us upon the path of life, then then the destination is very different. Paul says that the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Which path do you want your life to travel? The path of sinful desires that leads to death or the path determined by what the Holy Spirit desires that leads to life and peace. Here Paul's setting out a very sharp contrast. There's only one path that leads to life and there's a path that leads to death. There's nothing in between these paths. No middle ground. This reminds me of of the moment shortly before Moses died where he's reminding the people of Israel of all God has done, all that God has taught them. And then he tells them this. He says, today I am setting before you death and life. Choose life. One path is spiritual death. One path is eternal life. Which are you going to choose? Choose life. Not long ago, I was flying over eastern Colorado where the Great Plains slowly rise toward the Rocky Mountains. And I looked out my window, and unfortunately this isn't a picture of it, but I saw something like this. I looked out my window and below me for, for miles, east and west, there was this glistening cover of beautiful snow. But then I looked further south and there was this, this clear line. All of a sudden the line stopped and everything south of that line had no snow on it at all. I've never seen such a sharp snow line before. Beautiful snow and then sudden stop and then no snow at all. There are many things in the Christian life that involve gradual change and slow transition. We grow in our faith. We grow in Christ-likeness. We'll talk more about this in coming weeks. However, there are other things in the Christian life that are not gradual, that involve a sharp break, a sudden shift, a clear change. In this passage today, Paul's saying that there does not exist an in-between region between spiritual life and spiritual death, between living according to what the Holy Spirit desires and living according to what our sinful flesh desires. There's no middle ground here. Each of us are either traveling on a path towards spiritual life or spiritual death, And one indicator that can alert us where we're heading is the direction of our minds. The recent earthquake in Turkey has reminded me of an earthquake that happened uh, a number of years ago in El Salvador. I was living in California at that time and I knew someone in El Salvador. And I remember reading uh, about one particular hillside Uh, in El Salvador where where houses were built up part of this hill where the earthquake triggered a landslide that, that destroyed hundreds of homes, killed thousands of people. 
I, th- I, rem- I think. I can't remember how many died, but many, many died. Not long afterwards, I was traveling through Central America, and I visited my friend in El Salvador, and he took me to this very spot where I could see the hillside that I had read about. And what amazed me was how sharp the line was between the houses that were swept away and the houses that were completely fine. There was no gradual transition. It was a sharp line. On one side of this line, in the middle, there was a mudslide. Every single home was gone. Almost everyone who had been in those homes had died. And then right next to that, these lines, there were houses that were completely fine, totally intact, where the people survived. One neighbor dies, their next door neighbor lives. It's impossible for us to predict where snow falls in Colorado or which houses will be taken in a mudslide. Here, though, Paul tells us that we can know in advance whether we're heading toward the life of God or toward spiritual death, and that one indicator is the direction of our minds, what we think about, where we turn our minds, because where we turn our minds, the direction of our lives will follow. Are we turning our minds in the direction of our lives towards the things that our sinful flesh desires? If so, Paul says, remember that the mind governed by the sinful flesh is death. Are we turning our minds toward what the Spirit desires? Toward the things of God. Paul says the mind governed by the Spirit is life. It's peace. It's the eternal life of God. It's the peace of God that transcends all understanding. Paul then tells us a key truth that we'll come back to in coming weeks in Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. In other words, Paul is addressing believers in Jesus Christ. He's talking to those for whom there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus because they, they believe and trust in Christ Jesus. And Paul is calling these believers and us, therefore, live consistently with this reality. Live consistently with the reality of what Christ has done for you. You're no longer in the realm of the sinful flesh. You're now living in the realm of the Spirit. Live consistently with this reality. And the first step is to turn our minds away from the things of the sinful flesh because that's the path of spiritual death. That's the path Jesus rescues us from. And God calls us to turn our minds toward the things of the Spirit. Next Sunday, I'll speak more about how we can do this and what Paul means in chapter 12 when he tells us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This morning, though, we're hearing Paul's warning. There's a clear line between life and death. And our minds are either pointed towards the things of the sinful flesh and are leading us toward 
spiritual death or our minds are pointed towards the things of God and are leading towards spiritual life, the life of God. And we need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us through. The situation is much like a person who goes to see a doctor and finds out that because of their terrible diet and their chronic lack of exercise, they're about, their body is about to give out. And so they make a radical change. They start changing the way they eat. They start exercising. I've known people like this who've made a radical change and have become much healthier because of the warning that a medical doctor gave them. Paul here is acting like the doctor of our soul. And he's warning us. He's letting us know we need to change the direction in which our minds point the things we think about, the path toward which our minds are leading our lives. Because the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. This morning, there may be some here who know that your mind is governed by your sinful flesh. I invite you, in your moment of struggle, not to try to hide this or cover up this reality from God, but to honestly go to God in your moment of struggle like the tax collector in Luke 18. Confess your sin to God. Give him your struggle. Turn it over to him. Ask him for his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy. Surrender your sinful flesh to Jesus Christ. Allow him to put your sinful flesh to death on his cross. Allow him to fill you with his Holy Spirit, the only source of our power to live for God. And allow Jesus to transition the direction of your mind, the direction of your life, away from spiritual death toward the life and peace of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today that you call us not only to know that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, you call us to live out that reality And Lord, this transition from a life lived for the sinful flesh to a life lived for you, it's so radical. It's so, uh, such a, a dramatic shift. We can't force this ourselves, but by your death and resurrection, you make available to us the power of the Holy Spirit. And today, Holy Spirit, we ask you to fill us. And we ask you to give us power over our sinful flesh. We ask you to take our sinful flesh, to crucify it on the cross of Jesus Christ, to give us his life and power and righteousness so that we can live today as those who truly are set free from all condemnation. We pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen.